I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. Nate? Jung Yin. I'm going to tell you the start of a redemption arc. Just the start? For now. And it doesn't have a happy ending either. So this is Erica Walker. She says that in a former life, life... I was a failed architecture student, among other things. And most recently... Yeah, I was an artist. Like, I, uh, I made furniture and I was a bookbinder as well, so I, I bound books. And she was living in a great spot in Brookline, Massachusetts. Up until that point, I just remember my life was very peaceful. I mean, I had upstairs neighbors. They would be, you know, you'd hear them on occasion, but nothing like what happened when... This is where things go downhill. Because soon enough, she got upstairs neighbors, a couple with kids. And from the first day they moved in, I just heard this do 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 And it would last like 24 hours a day. I could see how that would be a little annoying. Yeah, it was to her, because the kids would thump and patter around as early as 6 a.m. on most days. So she tried talking to the neighbors about it, but it didn't work. Mm. But then I was like, I'm just going to take them to the small claims court. So I got like a little recorder. Um, I started collecting like my saliva samples because I read somewhere that, you know, you can test your like stress response. And I wanted to send them off to a lab. I was going to build like this elaborate case and get them evicted. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> I know. It's like ridiculous. No, but I mean, I feel like that says a lot about how much yeah. it constantly impacted yeah. you. It literally ruined my life. Like I just had no like you never knew when it was going to happen. You never knew how long it was going to last. And it was like this type of sound that just got in your bones. I can see how that would be annoying, but like going all the way to small claims court, that's kind of, I don't know, that's kind of wild. Okay, maybe for some, this might be an overreaction, but people go to great lengths to control their soundscapes. We buy noise-canceling headphones or white noise generators. There are those ASMR videos that people are into. Then let's get started by taking some deep breaths. I'm hooked on those 10-hour-long YouTube compilations of rain sounds. It's weird that some noises can be, like, totally infuriating, but then there's others that are just really soothing. Or sometimes even the same noises are both, like people who love fireworks until it's like 11 p.m. on July 8th and someone down the street is still popping them off. It was so constant. Um, it, 
I just felt helpless. Like I couldn't do anything. And like all the tools that I thought I could turn to to get relief, there was nothing. And here's the thing. The world has been literally getting louder during the past few centuries and because of humans. The National Park Service estimates that noise pollution doubles or triples every 30 years. Wow. Even fire truck sirens have actually gotten louder. Estimates from 1912 show they were 96 decibels loud from 11 feet away. In 1974, it was at 114 decibels, and a journalist in 2019 recorded them at 123 decibels at a 10-foot distance. There's more cars, airplanes, bulldozers. So, today, we've got an episode all about sound. This is, of course, Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, here with Jung Yoon Han, who will be our guide today as we explore three different sonic landscapes. Noise, silence, and something in between. And what our quest for sonic satisfaction says about being human in this noisy, noisy world. This is the first quiet park to be designated in all of Europe. I don't think it's that quiet. You don't think it's that quiet? Stay tuned. Breathe in through the nose. I'm going to push all this oxygen, all this life force energy towards you. All right, so we'll get back to Erica later in the show. But first, I wanted to really get at how noise and silence affect us. Mm -hmm. So I had to get in the thick of one end of it. And I brought producer Felix Poon with me on this journey. What's the noisiest part of Boston, in your opinion? Probably Logan Airport. You just go to the tarmac. <laughs> <laughs> just stand, stand there. So Felix lives in Boston, and you know when you live in a city, you definitely get used to noise. But even where I live, Franklin Park, on like a hot summer night, like a lot of people are blasting music, or like there's a lot of these high school kids that have these mopeds, and they're just like revving them up. So so we walked through some street intersections and it wasn't like, gosh, like I can't hear myself thinking kind of loud, but with with all those cars honking at each other or beeping, but you know that like everyone's going to eventually move. Like you don't need to beep. It's just irritating. People love uh, honking their horns, you know. They like being angry. I don't like being angry. I don't like having to honk my horn. Well, I can't hear you. It's too noisy. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to know what's actually happening biologically when we're subjected to noisy soundscapes. Mm -hmm. So I had Rachel Buxton, a biodiversity conservationist and sound ecologist, walk me through some of that. Do you want me to start from sort of the beginning of that idea? Yeah, yeah, that would be great. And FYI, the tape isn't very good. It's kind of ironic for an episode about sound. Uh, yeah, we had some technical difficulties. There's sort of three main ways that noise affects an animal. And the first one is 
masking. Masking? So so masking is when a sound covers up another one. So say mm-hmm. you're a mouse living next to a really busy highway, and it's so loud you don't hear the fox sneaking up behind you. You know, they're listening for predators approaching. And if they can't hear that, then, you know, maybe they're more likely to be eaten by that predator. Okay, I get that now. The next is distraction. Animals, us included, have limited attention spans to process the sights, smells, feelings, and sounds around us. And if an animal is too busy paying attention to noise, then it has less time to do other things like feed itself or anything else that it needs to do. Or navigate a city. Like every time I'm driving in a strange city, I always have to turn down the radio. It has to be completely quiet or else I get totally lost. So the last one is when an animal thinks a sound is a threat. They hear something sketchy, so they run away from it. Yeah, that's absolutely. You hear something like an incoming train, for instance, you're going to get out of the way. But but maybe it's actually just a noisy hiker bumbling through the woods. So you spook an animal away from a food source or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because our world is getting so much noisier, these problems can lead to wholesale behavioral changes for some species. In Alberta, Canada, for example, sparrows living near noisy oil and gas pumps and other big infrastructure gadget things are singing their love songs differently. Huh. They're actually becoming screechier. Wait, what do you mean by screechier? So researchers recorded the sparrow sounds and then found that they're using entirely different pitches that give off this screechy effect. A study in Western England found that noise from road traffic led to bat activity decreasing by two-thirds in the area. Some frogs have a harder time finding mating partners because they can't hear them over external noise. Also, loud ships, sonar devices, and oil wells mess with dolphins when they use echolocation to find food and to communicate. These sounds have literally disoriented dolphins and left them stranded on beaches. Wow, that's way worse than I thought it was. I just thought I was getting grumpy because I'd hear a tinny cell phone or a bunch of cars honking, but but this is way worse. But humans weren't built to handle this level of noise either. Before the Industrial Revolution, some of the sounds that people were used to were like roosters or church bells, maybe? Or like uh, goats? Horses clunking. I don't know. Stuff (laughs) stuff like that. But with more noise cluttering our cognitive processing all the time. That can lead to stress. And, you know, that can lead to a whole bunch of downstream health issues for us. Increased sound pollution can lead to ringing in your ears, heart disease, obesity, diabetes. According to the Western Europe Office of the World Health Organization, traffic noise in particular leads to an annual loss of at least one million healthy years of life. And around one-third of people in the U.S. live where it's noisy enough to cause adverse health impacts. Wow. We've got to get Felix out of Boston, like, ASAP. We'll see. I did not enjoy this experience overall. No. No. I mean, it wasn't like it was extremely loud, but... But I feel like it is in the ears of the beholder. Can we say that? I feel like it's gotten quieter. 
Okay, so on to our next soundscape. Do you get bothered by silence? Uh, depends on the situation. I don't like working in silence. But actually, no, I do get bothered by, by complete silence. I always like to have noise, crowds or some background white noise. I got to have that. So, so noise pollution is so everywhere that it, it really is rare to experience that true absence of sound. But I wanted to hear what that sounds like, which brought me to the University of New Hampshire. Hi, are you Stan? Yes, I am. Hello. Someone driving in looking confused, and it was you. I look a little confused. Hi, how are you? So this is Stan Ellis. He's an engineer within the space department at UNH. Great guy. He also introduced me to Jim Connell, professor in physics and astronomy. I had a high school chemistry teacher who said, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness except in a lab where it comes first. <laughs> Their science hall has a ton of cool stuff, like debris from actual rockets that went into space, and it had the thing that I was looking for, which is an anechoic chamber. Wait, wait, wait. So so what is an ana... How do you say that? Ana, ana, anechoic chamber? Anechoic. 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 Well, I have never heard of an anechoic chamber. So these are special rooms that stop electromagnetic waves or sound waves. So they totally deaden sound. Huh. And the one at UNH is about the size of a bedroom and is mostly empty except for a bench to sit on. And it has these giant blue foam spikes on all sides of the walls, even the ceilings. So the foam totally absorbs the sound really well. Anaerobic is like... Mm, exactly. Lacking oxygen. Same thing. And echo. Lacking echo. Mm -hmm. Got it. Now you go into the chamber and see how the sound changes. What I'll stay outside. How would you describe how the sound changes? It's going to get really weird when you can't hear yourself talk. It's just you get no echo. It's very strange. Go on in. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I'll be here with Jim. I'll be sure to let you out. Okay. Were you scared? Okay. Yeah, I, I was a little nervous about it because I heard something about possible side effects of like being in a quiet space. And this is something that has been reported by a lot of astronauts because we know that sound does not travel in space. This is Mercedes Erfanian, a neuroscientist studying sound at the University College of London. She says there are people who really dislike being in silence, and that could be because we're programmed biologically to expect a certain amount of sonic stimuli. That's a problem for astronauts doing spacewalks where there's literally no sound except the ones coming from your own body inside of a spacesuit. So you can't hear anything. It's just sheer silence in the space. So when your brain does not get enough information, auditory information, it starts to make it because it will go crazy if it does not get that information. Okay, the doors have closed. Yeah, and you can hear how quiet it is. And you can hear that there's no echo of what you say. No. I can't tell if this is my just a very actual reaction or just my brain trying to adjust, but it feels like I can't breathe as much or it's not my breathing is not as full I don't know if that's a result of the silence 
I can still hear some white noise type of wind, not wind, but something overhead. But I feel very closed in. How do you feel, Jim? Well, again, I'm a little bit used to it. It's interesting. I tend to feel, if I close my eyes, more like I'm in a big desert area where there's nothing around to reflect sound. A big desert area. Because it's like my words just go off to infinity. Okay, I'll try that now. Yeah, I can see that. And then Stan was like, okay, that's that's enough, and then pulled us out of the chamber. Wow. It just sounded like you were in like the best studio ever. I felt like I could hear every little like everything you don't want to hear, you were able to get it all. <laughs> it sounded like you were just encapsulated in a pillow, like just a just a giant comfy pillow. But uh, you, you, have you have you heard of the composer John Cage? Yes, I have. Yeah, I was kind of really obsessed with him when I was in my early 20s and in that kind of peacoat wearing artsy phase of my life. So so then you you probably know this, but he was really inspired by silence. And that was one of the core ideas behind one of his most famous and notorious pieces, four minutes and 33 seconds. Yes, I have heard of that piece, but I don't think I've actually heard it. So the piece premieres in 1952, and John Cage gets his friend, uh, this pianist, David Tudor, to perform it in Woodstock, New York. Okay. So what happens is David walks up to the piano. Mm. He starts a stopwatch, (laughs) and then he closes a lid, and then he just sits there. And that's the start of the performance. Completely still. He doesn't touch a single piano key. Yeah. And then after a bit longer, he restarts stopwatch and continues to sit there for four minutes and 33 seconds until the piece is done. Talk about, like, an awkward silence. I'm sure people in the audience were just, like, dumbfounded by it. Yeah, but that's the entire thing that John Cage was flirting with. Hmm. Because in his eyes, this wasn't four minutes of silence. When someone in the crowd coughs or shifts uncomfortably in their seat, that's the real performance. So, like, every performance of four minutes and 33 seconds is different because of the sounds. The sound experience, which I prefer to all others, <clears throat> is the experience of silence. If you listen to Beethoven or to Mozart, you see that they're always the same. 
But if you listen to traffic, you see it's always different. After the break, some of the ways people propose we try to think of the sounds around us. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie here with Jung Yoon Han. And so far in this episode, we've visited downtown Boston to hear about noise pollution and an anechoic chamber to talk about silence. And that brings me to our third sonic landscape for this episode and the search for the ideal space between too noisy and too quiet. Quiet Parks International is the first and only organization committed to the preservation of quiet for the benefit of all living beings. So there's this nonprofit that scopes out and nominates certain public spaces as designated quiet parks. And there are hundreds of them across the U.S. and the world, from urban parks and cities to big wild forests. And they do it partially because there are studies that show being immersed in nature can help you feel relaxed, restored. And that will in turn help you adjust your attention span. Quiet is a resource, and if we don't do something to protect it now, it'll be much harder in the future to regain what we've lost. So when they say it's a a designated quiet place, does that mean you actually have to be, like, completely silent in it or something? Like, not play a Bluetooth speaker or something? No, so they don't have any enforcement power, so they can't tell you to be quiet. You can still do what you want. The thing that makes them quiet, though, according to this group, is that you can't hear as much human-made noise pollution when you're in them. Hello. Okay, yes, this works. So a few months ago, I got a chance to visit the first official one in Europe, which is a place called Hampstead Heath in London. It's like the perfect English park name. Uh, my name is Rob Stedman. And what brought you here to this park? Well, I live in the area, so um, I'm just kind of working from home today, so taking a bit of a, a break from work and having a wander. What What about it do you like? It's just, it's a lot more natural than a lot of the parks around London. Like just down the road, I've got Primrose Hill, which is, is really nice, but it's a bit more wild here and, and kind of let to, let to overgrow. So I kind of like that element of it. Um, that sounds really lovely. It was actually quite peaceful, I gotta say. It was great. 
at times. Does it feel any quieter? Um, perhaps it's yeah, it's quite everyone. It's quite quiet and peaceful here. I suppose. I think in a lot of the other parks, you get people kind of running, jogging, and talking to one another loudly. I don't think I've ever seen anyone bring guitars down here or anything like that, which you kind of get in other parks. But I think there's a lot of rules and regulations about the parks. I don't know all of them. But okay, so to be a quiet park international, it's totally cool to have a helicopter or a plane flying overhead all the time. I guess it's one of the requirements, actually. <laughs> Okay, hi, my name is Nora Ma. I'm a student and I study here in London. I don't think it's that quiet. You don't think it's that quiet? No, because like just from this experience now, you can hear like construction going on in someone's house. You can hear someone calling for their dogs. But I'm sure if you're like in the middle of the heath, it might be much more quiet. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this too. Oh, Corky. Focus, Jungyun. Focus. Oh, she's so cute. Oh, thank you. Aw, have a good one. You too. <laughs> so what, what is your takeaway from your visit to the Heath that, like, quiet parks aren't possible? I think it's that there's not going to be a place that's going to be completely quiet, but I still enjoyed it. I had a nice time because... It's a social space. You get to see everyone there enjoying themselves, doing whatever they want, like people walking their dogs. Or for me, people watching was really fun. Um, It's also true, though, that humans make noise and that that can be hard to manage at times. So this brings us back to our special friend, Erica Walker, from the very beginning of the episode. We are talking full circle. So she tried for a year and a half to evict her neighbors, but her various efforts did not work. And so eventually I ended up just moving out. And that whole experience really affected her. And so I was like, wow, this is something I never thought about. And my friends were like, we really think you need to take all of this energy and put it into something productive. And soon enough, our failed architect, artist, furniture maker, Erica Walker, was on the fast track to earning her degree in public health. And researching sound pollution became her passion. I know what it's like to suffer from sound. So when I know that someone is at the point where they're trying to reach out to get relief, I know it's rock bottom. She launched the Community Noise Lab, now based at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Communities come to her with all sorts of noise complaints, and she tries to figure out what might help. Uh, We work with communities near airports, communities near major industrial networks, concerts, firework issues, motorcycles, cars with the bass. That's a lot of sound. Like, how do you deal with all that? I mean, like, how do you stop people from popping out fireworks, you know, at midnight in August. Her approach was about having conversations with people, trying to get them to talk things out and find compromise. So for me, I kind of just like to take it on an individual community by community basis, individual by individual basis, because ultimately it's about what an individual and what a community can or cannot control. kind of sounds like a tough job. Yeah, for sure. She's come to learn a lot of lessons about sound. Mm-hmm. And one of them is that having neighborhoods or cities strive to reach a point of natural quiet or silence isn't the right approach. Quiet and silence means that somebody needs to be quiet. Somebody has to stop doing whatever they're doing 
And in today's society, usually the people who have power and control are the ones that can exert silence and quiet on other people. And they usually have their preconceived notions about what's loud and what's quiet. That's interesting. She says that the way people talk about noise can be coded with racial bias. These people are loud because I don't want them in my neighborhood. These people are loud because they bring down my property values. So I think that when we're looking at quiet or silence, we are looking at a power differential where people who have the power to silence people will. And who are they silencing? This is a pretty dramatic shift from someone who tried to have her upstairs neighbors evicted because they had kids. Like I said, a redemption arc. So I was, I was horrible. I didn't say I was a good person. Uh. Anyways, anyways, when it comes to having designated quiet spaces, Erica is only half on board. If it's um, equitably distributed in the community where everyone is able to access that space, I think that's great. But I don't know if it is the solution to the community noise issues because some people are creeped out by <laughs> silence and some people just like, look, I want my neighbors to stop running upstairs. I don't, I like living in a city. I love hearing the horns. That's just, that feels like New York City. That feels like Providence. It's like uh, John Cage said, like the world just becomes a symphony. The world is your oyster. I don't know if that's how the phrase is actually that's done. That's how the phrase is. Anyway. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> the world is your sonic oyster. Enjoy. Okay, so before we sign off, we want to know, what are your favorite and or least favorite sounds in nature or otherwise? Like, I cannot stand the sound of someone chewing an apple. That is just one of the sounds that I don't like. Uh, what sound bothers you? What sound do you love? Send us a voice memo at outsidein at nhpr.org. This episode was produced by Jung Yoon Han. It was mixed by Jung Yoon Han and Taylor Quimby. Editing by Taylor with help from me, Nate Hedgie, Jessica Hunt, and Felix Poon. Our executive producer is Rebecca Lavoy. Special thanks to Ethan Cross. His book, Chatter, is about how we can harness our inner voice. He has an interesting chapter about how being in nature helps us emotionally, mentally, and physically. You should definitely check it out. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Edvard Grieg, and Mike Franklin. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Should I do that in ASMR? Outside In is a production. Perfect. Precisely the correct amount of quiet.